everybody. I am Marina Malaguti, and I'm your host at Embossed. Embossed is a podcast I've created to highlight women with amazing paths of success here in Chicago. Last year, I set out to interview the only 40 female CTOs in the city, and this year I've expanded to uh, female CEOs and women in politics and government in Chicago. I'm excited to share these interviews with you, and I hope you contact me at www.embossed.io or email me at marina at embossed.io. Hope to see you soon. Born and raised on the south side of Chicago by a white Jewish mother who was a Chicago public school teacher and an African-American father who rose to be the sergeant in the Chicago police force, Angelique has an intense love for this dazzling, creative, and deeply scarred city. Before joining the Field Foundation, Power was a program director at the Joyce Foundation. There, she co-founded Enrich Chicago, a nonprofit-led movement designed to correct inequity in and structural racism in the arts. She has directed community engagement and communication at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and led community relations giving at Target Corporations. She has an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in English from the University of Michigan. As president of the Field Foundation, Angelique catalyzed changes within the Field Foundation grant structure to anonymous survey sent to nonprofit leaders, peers research, and study of Chicago needs and gaps in investment. Staff and board wide racial justice training allowed Field Foundation to ensure that racial equity was a core value of the work. Through research, Field created maps of Chicago revealing where the city has designed communities that suffer from poverty, trauma, and lack of investment. Learning more about the incredible power inside of these communities of color and investing in the savvy organization locator there has become a key focus of the field. Nonprofit feedback, foundation peer unit, racial justice training, heat maps of Chicago, all of these pieces help reveal a path forward. The new grant model centered around community empowerment through justice, art, and leadership investment. This new model opens the door to funding for neighborhoods that are too commonly divested. The end aims at addressing root causes of the issues along every Chicago and to thrive in the city we love. Welcome, Angelique. Hey, everybody. This is Marina, your host at Unbossed. Today, I've been looking forward to this interview for the last uh, week since I've talked to Angelique Power, the president at the Field Foundation of Illinois. And uh, it's going to be a super interesting conversation. Angelique, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me on this incredible podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Um, before we start, I wanted just to tell you, like, you have so much content that I want I want to share with people. Um, you have at least three YouTube videos. One talks about the death of equity. Another one talks about understanding the new our new world series, where you are very vulnerable about the situation that has happened with you and your family during COVID. Um, another one that I really loved was the talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so you're embedded with a part of Chicago that, to be honest, I unfortunately know very little about, but I'm here to learn from you. And really, that's this is really where I'm trying to um, engage with you in this conversation today, where I want to learn the things that you know, because I want to be more aware of, of what's happening around Chicago and in the areas in Chicago that I perhaps I'm not as familiar with, to be honest. And can I ask you questions too? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, good. Because I'm excited to learn, you know, with you. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think where I come from is like I'm an immigrant and I was, I, I came to the United States uh, for college um, and I consider myself black, but I've never had the African American experience um, as you like, as you may experience in America, I've had racial inequity experiences in Europe and in Dominican Republic, where I'm from. But those seem to be very different. And so, um, I am eager to learn and to listen, but also absolutely to contribute to this conversation as much as possible. Oh, good. I already have questions for you. On that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, throw, let's let's do this. Well, yeah. I I think that's so interesting and you know there is this moment that we're in right now where the protests and uprisings around George Floyd 
those weren't just black people out on the streets. Like we actually saw multiracial coalitions of all ages, especially young people hitting the streets around the world. Yes. So I think what it unlocked is that this is an issue. Certainly America's default operating system is racism, but this is an issue across the world, even if it manifests differently. And so I was just curious about what you said of having the experience of being a black person in different spaces, but it feels distinctly different than being a black American. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I think like my my partner and I talk about this often because he is African-American and and in the beginning, when I said, you know, I consider myself black, perhaps it was hesitation to not appropriate something that was his experience. And even within my relationship, I feel like that's important not to do, right? Um, but I think the way it is different, at least in, for me, is um, I, am, I am subject of uh, racial inequities, racism, uh, but I do not have the history of slavery within my culture or or my family culture we have different history which is the invasion you know of european colonizers in the caribbean and what that meant for us as latino latino as a latino woman or as a latino man my family right um but but not the same history of of slavery i want to say and that part of history that is so um defining, I want to say, for for Black Americans. That's so interesting. Um, You know, because we talk about colonialism so much now, but I don't think I've ever thought about that, that there is a different inherited memory that we have because we are born from slavery versus colonialism when someone is sort of, at the same time, you know, abducting your language and your practices and your culture, but you are not in, you are not enslaved, you are not property. So what does that look like? And actually, I think that that is so, everyone is so necessary to rebuild this sort of liberatory future that we're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, The other layer to that that I want to add um, that just came to me as you were saying it is that it was not necessarily only the slave portion of it because to be honest, there were Latinos that were enslaved. I think there's also the part of like eradicating the person from their country of origin. So, mm-hmm. so the, the additional experience, I feel like, uh, and, and this is opinion. So please, if you feel differently, let me know. <laughs> you and the, the audience, let, let us know what you think. But um you know, like Latinos, my family was never eradicated from their country in, and and made into, uh, turned into a slave. We were enslaved within our own country. Um, but then we fought for our revolution and our independence, but we were still within our land, if you will, um, and or our land of origin. I could say it that way, maybe it's better. Um, and maybe there's something there. I haven't really had it, gave it enough thought. What do you think? You know, it's funny because a few years ago, I did one of those Ancestry.com DNA things. And, you know, my husband was like, you know that they own your DNA when you do that. And, and, you know, and I read the fine print and I was like, what, so are they going to clone me? Like, I would, okay, I would, that would be useful. Like that one goes to the conference, that one goes to the board meeting and and I'll be at home cooking. So I was just sort of like through caution to the wind and didn't think about um, the ramifications, which is also, that's a whole other bottle of wine since I've turned in my DNA, all of the things (laughs) I've learned since then. But the main reason that I did it is because I wanted to know my countries of origin. Like just knowing you're from Africa, this continent isn't the same. And when I did get my DNA results back and I saw like, oh, like Mali, you know, Benin, like there were all these actual countries that I could trace my family back to. I cried. I cried. I've never had that in my life, you know, and it made me feel very different. Like I want to visit these places and I want to 
and and feel like I'm returning in some ways for ancestors returning back to a motherland. So I absolutely agree with that. I think that being countryless, um, I think that is that has an impact. Yeah. Yeah. That and that is really I can see that that could be extremely meaningful um, and and beautiful to just discover where you're from like to be honest i feel privileged in a way because i i don't ask myself that question i know you know where my mom and my grandma and their grandma grew up whether it's in europe or in the dominican republic and i know at least a few generations like i want to say at least five to ten generations back where we were wow that's great that's really a gift yeah absolutely and and at the same time i don't want to discount the the fact that I do think that also like I've made America my home. Mm -hmm. And so there's also part of me that, you know, owns this place in a way that it is my land now. And I hope that could be the experience of others as well. Yes. And I think the duality is possible. I think that you can have claim on a place and you can be claimed by a place. Yeah. It could be different. And I think allowing for that duality, there's a lot of beauty in that space. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Perfect. All right, I'm going to take you back because I want to know, you, we're going to talk about all the amazing work that you're doing. I want to, I want to perhaps take you back to like you as a little girl, as a, as a, as a kid. Did you have any memories or of really like maybe something significant that made you really get into uh, doing uh, civic, we call it civic work, doing this type of civic work that is uh, towards the community of color and uh, marginalized communities in Chicago. Yes. Um, so before we started recording, you had said that you are of mixed heritage and your husband is of mixed heritage. That's and, nice. Sorry, I just realized that my... Um, here. No <laughs> and I'm just going to quickly stop that from happening. I'm so sorry. No worries. It happens. This is life. <laughs> and I can't seem to stop it. Um, let me just go in here. I have a million things open. <laughs> That's what the problem is. You're a busy woman. <laughs> you do. Okay. This is what I realized I need to do. I have... Um, tabs open for a meeting later and so they're stopping me from closing my i hope that your listeners are not subjected to all the things that are happening right now oh no worries we'll cut it later it's fine okay, good. <laughs> no do not do not no okay I'm back. Perfect. So before we started recording, you had shared with me that you are of mixed heritage and that your husband is of mixed heritage yep. too. Um, and so this question about early childhood memories and why I do the work that I do is really pertinent. So I am the youngest of six. Okay. And um, my mother, my parents have both passed, but my mother was white and Jewish and my father was black. And um, we grew up on the south side of Chicago. She was a public school teacher, Chicago public school teacher. He was a Chicago police officer. And, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1971, grew up in the 70s and 80s in Hyde Park, mm -hmm. uh, which is, for those that don't know, on the historically black south side of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the campus of University of Chicago. So. Yeah it is decidedly black and it's decidedly Jewish. And so it is this really interesting space. And, you know, I joke about it and I say like, if you're gonna be black and Jewish, you should probably grow up in Hyde Park because, you know, if there's ever a place where you're not the only one, there's a lot of different mixtures of families. Um, you're in so this- The Sophie Hotel is there. Sophie Hotel is now there. That was not there when I was growing oh, up. We didn't cool things like that. Obama house, the Obama house is there. The Obama house is there. It's actually across the street from the temple that I was raised in. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, yeah. And so 
I think that from a very young age, I was aware of being sort of the brown kid in Temple mm-hmm. and being the light-skinned kid at like family backyard barbecues. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there is, because I grew up in Hyde Park, because it was a place of a lot of mixture, but not grounded in predominantly white spaces, but grounded in more of a predominantly black space. It's different. And so I think that I don't feel like I've had this troubled biracial past. Mm. I grew up in many ways studying how these cultures overlap, um, how there's perceived differences that aren't actually differences. Um, having this sort of passport between different cultures mm. uh, and code switching and learning how to code switch in different um, situations. And so I, I learned how to be a part of communities and apart from communities at the yeah. same time. And so I do think that in many ways, you know, um, I was training without realizing it or not to be this liaison between different cultures, to have this empathetic approach to difference. Um, But I also think that having a teacher and a cop as a parent is also, was also a gift because teachers and police officers are often blamed, right, for not solving the issues that the systems that they work in perpetrate. Yes. So, I was very aware of my father risking his life, worrying for him. Um, I was very aware of the dreams that he used to have. He used to have nightmares about things that could happen to him. And the stories he told of being a black police officer on, you know, the police department that was notoriously racist in Charlie. And so he saw how people were treated. He saw the fallibility of police officers. And my mother is a teacher, and I was just telling this story the other day to my friend who was a teacher, but like we helped her grade papers. She was a high school English teacher. We helped her grade papers. She worked around the clock. Her students would call her all the time. They'd stop her in grocery stores. Like years after they graduated, she remembered all their names, all their stories. And she had like a Monday dress, a Tuesday dress, a Wednesday dress, you know, Um, we grew up with not that much, but with a tremendous amount of family around us, love, curiosity. Um, And I think all of that geared me up to do the work that I do every day. That's beautiful. And so briefly, because we we don't necessarily want to to talk too much shop, but I want to give the Field Foundation of Illinois space to be in this conversation. And um, when I talk to us a little bit about what is the work you do and what is the purpose. And I know there's a long story about the Field Foundation. Um, uh, and and I think like our, our listeners can and will read that, but I would love to, for you to like definitely like touch on that as well. Okay, so um, most of your listeners might, well maybe I'll assume that they might remember Marshall Field stores, right? Or the Field Museum. Yes. Well, that's named for Marshall Field, the original, the OG, as I call him, <laughs> who like started the stores um, and also started like the Field Museum, helped to create the Art Institute, the Shedd Aquarium, the Botanic Gardens, you know, a lot of these like cultural meccas around town. So his grandson, Marshall Field III, was a little bit of a rebel and um, was very focused on inequity, inequality, and race. And this is in the 40s. He started a foundation really focused on racial issues. And even there's language around racial justice in the 40s. Mm-hmm. He created a private independent foundation, not a family foundation, that was very unusual, and had this focus on doing really cool stuff. Um, the foundation split at one point. There was a Field Foundation of New York. John, Congressman John Lewis was the very first staff member of the Field Foundation of New York. And they funded organizers and all kinds of stuff, gave all their money away and sunset in 20 years. Yes. The Field Foundation, where I work, really started to fund after Marshall Field III created two and then he passed away, they started to fund a lot of these cultural institutions. And then in the 80s, did a pivot and focused more on smaller institutions, brought their first black man to lead the organization, followed by a black woman. 
followed by me. And I started five years ago. I'm a skeptic of philanthropy, which is a whole other conversation to have. Yeah. Um, I've worked in you know corporate sector. I've worked in nonprofit sector. I've worked in philanthropic. I was very leery of why we don't talk about race. Yes. I've been studying anti-racism. I co-founded an organization called Enrich Chicago, focused on anti-racism. And the Field Foundation um, board and staff and community, we've been on a journey for five years, really trying to figure out what operationalizing racial justice looks like. Yes. Uprisings are important. Racial equity statements could be important, um, but the daily work of actually operationalizing anti-racism takes practice, takes muscle memory, takes commitment. And in some ways it's like the banal work of justice. And we've been doing that for five years to tremendous results. That's the short story. Yeah. Um, something cool that you told me about when we first talked was that you're actually, just for our listeners, uh, the foundation used to be focused mostly on nonprofit and now it's changing. Want to talk a little bit about that just so that we know, uh, and, and you, want to tell, you want to tell our listeners like what type of organizations do you fund? So if they apply for, the, for the, those criteria, you know, they could contact the foundation. Yes. Um, so traditionally foundations fund, the tax code is a 501c3, which means you are um, a nonprofit organization. And foundations are allowed to fund nonprofits and then they have their different focus areas. What we've been up to is realizing that social impact doesn't organize itself as a 501c3 all the time. Yeah. People who are doing incredible work that you know, yeah. often they're individuals, they could be in like a cooperative, which is something we're seeing a lot of. Um, people who are eschewing all capitalist values and they're like, let's have a workers cooperative or a collaborative um, for-profit. And so we have started to fund individuals directly, which I love this program. Um, and we've also started to fund for-profit organizations. Yeah. Second part of your question, what do we fund? Um, justice is a category, which means organizers. Community organizers are brilliant. They're visionaries. You know, we heard about Black Lives Matter movements on the news this summer. That has been happening for years. Yes. And so many Black women, femme women, like trans women have been working on Black Lives Matter work for so long in this city. Yeah. And so um, what we, you know, as a mainstream society get hip to, that is because of BIPOC organizers working for like five years. So we get our money to those organizers. We fund art, and I'm doing, for those listening, I'm doing air quotes around the word art. Um, really creative enterprise, whatever that looks like. So um, we fund that in all different ways, and we fund media and storytelling. So we give money directly to Black and Latinx and um, Indigenous and Asian media companies, as well as podcasters, <laughs> um, people who are doing podcasts and, and web series and documentaries, the way many of us are getting our news and information these days, as opposed to through newspapers. So we're really interested in narrative, we're really interested in creative expression, we're interested in justice issues, and through leadership um, investment, our fourth category, we fund brilliant organizers, journalists, media, and storytellers directly. Wow, amazing. Amazing, thank you so much. Um, I, I guess I'm ready to put in an application for it. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually in the process right now of reviewing, and I think you'll like this, um, that the people who make the recommendations on who gets these awards, these individual awards, are people who have received them. So it's not like we're deciding. Every year, the group decides who the next leaders for a new Chicago, that's the name of the award, should receive the awards, the board approves it, and then a new cohort is born. And so actually, we're doing this interview at the end of April. Um, we will be making an announcement at the beginning of June with the next cohort of leaders. Beautiful. Amazing. Um, Perfect. So next year, I guess. 
<laughs> so think in January, that's the time that the portal opens, yes. Um, there's one more thing about, um, and then we can go into more of our conversation, but one thing uh, about the Field Foundation that I found really cool was the Chicago heat maps. Um, and I think this can definitely spark uh, our next conversation here. But I just uh, looked at the heat maps and they're very interesting. Because I'm a data person, I would like to just quickly read a couple of the stats that you guys, that you all have uh, posted on this project. And this project, to, to be clear, is a study on the communities in Chicago or the parts of Chicago where the white population is less than 10%. Um, and the study, area, the study area makes up approximately 41% of the city population. Yes. And what you found is that the, the poverty rate in the study area is 32% or double of that of the remainder of Chicago. So poverty is extremely, I would say extremely high. Uh, the violent crime rate is 350% higher uh, than the remainder of Chicago. Uh, the educational standardized test scores are half or less than half in cases in the percentile than the remainder of Chicago. And while the test scores are, are, are lower, 82% of the 49 CPS schools closures in 2013 came from those areas as well. That's right. not, yeah, not only the, 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 the tests are lower, but also we're closing schools in those areas. 28% um, of the residents are uninsured. Um, which is 75% higher than the remainder of Chicago. We have about 22% uh, of the story population fa faces commute to work in excess of 60 minutes, which is 70% higher than the remainder of Chicago. And then the last one is that um, of the 387 arts organizations in Chicago doing work within Chicago public schools, only 13% of them are headquartered within the study area. So art is also not prominent uh, in this area. Well, what I'll add to that final map is that these are organizations that um, classify themselves primarily as arts organizations. And this goes back to why after we did this, we started funding individuals and in, for-profits, but when you go to the city, if you pull where um, copyrights for music licenses go, the majority of copyrights for music licenses go to people within that study area, which is the south and west side of Chicago. Like, that's where, you know, chance, like, didn't come from nowhere, you know what I mean? So there's actually the story of the study area, and especially of the arts, um, are twofold. So one of the big takeaways is that the red line that we use in the maps you were looking that detail out the study area um, that tracks almost directly to redlining that was put into place by federal housing policy decades ago and what you build on top of redlining which is you know these um you know mandated policies that prohibited lending to black people primarily, although it also goes into Latinx communities as well. So you couldn't get a loan, um, you couldn't purchase property, the type of property you could purchase was limited, you were in housing covenants and all kinds of stuff. You can't amass uh, home ownership, which leads to generational wealth. If you think about the school funding formula, pulling this forward to how property taxes fund your local schools, then you start to see how that red line of policies is actually creating the results that you see inside of those maps. And wow. so, I'm sorry. I just said, wow. Like, yeah. And so anyone who is doing work on social impact or anyone who's hearing these words systemic racism and saying, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? What that looks like is realizing that the reason we have violent crime in our city, the reason that people are uninsured is because there aren't jobs, there isn't access to healthcare, 
there isn't access to great, amazing schools that are really well-funded and filled with the arts and music, that we've actually created pre-existing conditions that are dangerous to our health, to our ability to amass wealth, and to our mental health as well. And then we've blamed the people inside of that study area for actually delivering on what those systems have been trained to do. As folks in foundations, as folks in corporations, um, in government, if we are not attacking that red line, if we aren't attacking the policies, then we're trimming at the margins. Then we're just trying to help one person or a group of people with mentoring programs. Um, actually, we need to completely redo our policies and our investment. So we create these like abundant, beautiful generative spaces. If we don't, then we are complicit. We are complicit. Perfect. Thank you. And that I think explains a lot. I will leave the link for the project in uh, in the podcast for anyone that is interested. Please check it out. Um, what was the second thing? So that was the first thing I think you said that was one of the main takeaways, and that yeah. that is a really great explanation. And we can talk about maybe after you answer this, like is is there things that are getting done around redlining? But what was the second thing that you learned? The second thing is that these maps um, are deficit maps. They point out the negative pieces of systems that are delivering. But if you look at what's not on maps, like I said, you know, the music, pulling the music yes. license. Um, if you think about mom and pop, you know, you think about like the individual food carts that are actually like entrepreneurs that exist in these communities. If you think about the solidarity economy, which is not connected to a job, it is actually people who are entrepreneurial spirits that are out there, whether they're selling loose cigarettes, whether they're selling things that are not legal or have become legal, but white men are making more money off of it. Yes. But there is, whether they're running childcare out of their home so people can take that hour trip to get to work, Yep. Uh, there is actually a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit that is creative, that is generative, that is not recognized and often policed. That it's within the system because of necessity and otherwise initiative, creativity, and just sheer force out of the people in these communities. Yes. That is, that is goes unrecognized somehow. It's, it's silenced. Yes. So actually it benefits all of Chicago to unlock these borders, to unlock these barriers, mm -hmm. and to not just help benevolently help those in need, like that's not necessary. These are brilliant human beings. These are generative, powerful communities mm -hmm. that if other parts of Chicago are not accessing, then they are lacking an opportunity. That's and so, so I think that it's really about approaching visionaries in these spaces for partnership um, and doing whatever we can to get capital over to folks that are already entrepreneurial visionaries. Yeah. And that are already generating in their own way that business um, yeah. within their communities and, and, and staying with the community and giving back into those communities. I, I think it's, it's, I think it's really powerful. I was just in, Hyde Park not too long ago as a little like we can get away and it was an amazing place to be really really fun but also the spirit is there and the music and the and the entrepreneurship everything you said is just really everything is so transparent and so um visible did you stay there did you do a staycation yeah did you stay at the Sophie? Is that I, why? I did. I did. Did you go to the Silver Room by any chance? I did go to. That's my one of my favorite places in the world now. Isn't yeah. that amazing? So is this is a perfect example for you. The Silver Room is a store. It is a for-profit. It is a grantee of ours. Yes. Because the person who runs it, Eric Williams, and I don't know if he was there when you went in. He wasn't. I asked, but he wasn't. Yeah. Well, he's a good person for your podcast too. Okay. Um, perfect because he's been doing the block party for forever from when he was in Wicker Park actually to now in Hyde Park, it is like the most incredible like event. And then he also is creating these corridors of opportunity in different places. 
um, he has always had social impact as part of his business. And so, yeah. So the Silver Room, for the listeners that they don't know, is this store which um, sells items from, I want to say, if different communities, but I want to say is uh, mostly uh, Black communities, Latinx communities. And they have just this amazing taste in selecting this very, uh, how would you say, like, it's very liberatory. It's very like joyful and powerful and fashionable and cool. It's just and you'll everything. find anything from like handmade candles to uh, restored jewelry to unique clothing items to um, scents and and incense and it's just uh, uh, and music. So sometimes he has a live DJ in the store and it's a very like really really cool experience mm -hmm. yes yes yeah. beautiful um i think like uh, there's there's um the way we can go about this is do you, are you aware of the activities around redlining right now? Is there any movement around redlining that is happening, whether it is because of the new president coming into office or, or something else? Is there anything going on there that you can share? Well, what I'll say is, um, and I'm writing down notes so that I don't forget, because uh, there's so many cool things that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, technically, the uh, federal policy around redlining that prevented banks from, from lending was removed. But what we saw in 2008 with predatory lending is that redlining itself morphs into these different shapes mm -hmm. and takes on exploitative, extractive practices of black and brown communities. Okay. That, so I would say redlining is this very clear-cut example um, that has then morphed into these different examples of policies that have impacted. So even as you were talking through the heat maps that uh, Field did, and you talked about um, the schools, and so there was the map that showed that, you know, I think it's like students performing at the 32nd percentile inside of the study area and at the 67th percentile outside of it. And the next map shows how the majority of schools closed. That's an education policy, like a morphed redlining policy disguised as something that is working on behalf of communities of color, but actually is completely not. Um, you cannot close schools that students have access to, making them travel further across territories that aren't safe, and as opposed to just funding and funding the schools that need it the most. Um, so I think the organizers are working on a variety of things. There's a group of organizers that have been working on housing in different ways, you know, especially with COVID, trying to stem evictions, mm -hmm. trying to mandate affordable housing. You know, you're talking about Hyde Park and Hyde Park, Woodlawn, South Shore. These are areas that are in danger of actually losing a lot of their longtime low income residents when the Obama Center comes not because that's what the Obama Center wants, but because that is often what happens when development starts to happen around a space. Yes. And so unless there is an active awareness that in five to 10 years, the historically black South side could be majority white and we don't want that, that that will lose the soul of the area. And so we have to mandate affordable housing within every development that happens. We have to provide protections of property tax caps. Um, we have to work with tenants. All of that kind of stuff is happening. And there's, if you look at the Field Foundation website, you could see some of the most brilliant organizers that are working on that. Now there are people in government that are working on this stuff too. The Cook County Assessor, Fritz Kagey, um, who is originally a Hyde Parker actually, um, 
he has made it his platform to actually do an examination of all property taxes. Mm. And, you know, I was in conversation with him maybe a month or two ago, and I was saying, you know, property tax evaluation just feels so dry and boring that people are sleeping on it a little bit, but it is this huge equity play. And what he found is that in black neighborhoods, black families are paying more in property taxes than in wealthier white neighborhoods because the property tax assessment is so all over the place, it feels so arbitrary. Mm. And then people get their property tax bill and they go and they like refute it and then they get it lowered. And that just doesn't happen in black and brown neighborhoods. So he's trying to actually be very transparent about analysis around property taxes. So again, another way that redlining morphs. And then I think one of the coolest things that's happening, and I'm keeping an eye on this, is reparations. Yeah. We've been following this, but you know, for years, even saying reparations, people would look at you sideways like, mm, you know, are you insane? Like, what are you asking for? Yeah. Evanston, yes. Evanston, of all places, has actually passed something yes. in the city council that has like a formula behind it of looking at long-term black residents in Evanston, looking at like housing looking at these things around redlining and what's resulted from it and the amount of generational wealth that they've missed out on and has calculating what that would look like in dollars and then providing it to folks that they can use toward housing. Yes. Super interesting. Do you, have, do you think um, personally, uh, without creating any, specifically any new policy, but you think personally reparations could, uh, could get implemented here in Chicago? I, well, all right, let me think before I talk. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, before we started, I was like reading the news about even just this back and forth over the renaming of Lakeshore Drive for DeSable and the squabbling. I mean, I think likely Evanston will lead the way for the nation mm -hmm. and that California, which has already been working on it, will follow. I don't think that in the next couple of years we will see a reparations packet move through city council. Um, but I do think that in the future there is something that's possible, especially with the Biden-Harris administration that have yeah. mentioned it. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, I, I feel like where we started about what is the liberatory future, um, there needs to be more money is a huge part of it resources is a huge part of it but i feel like there needs to be more that's given than just like you know in in funding it's called go away money right where organizations of color don't get funded at the same rate as white organizations mm -hmm. and if they cause a little bit of a stink with some foundations then they might receive go away money which is more than they would normally get, not nearly enough as others get, and they're supposed to just go away after mm. that. Shush money. Yes. And so I think that what um, what is needed is this vision, and the young folks have it. <laughs> they have it in spades, you know. We haven't talked about this defund the police or abolish police movement that's happening right now. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is the purity test around just the name defund the police or just the name abolish the police. It's meant to scare people off of this conversation. It's meant to say like, if you aren't ready to just sort of jump on and say like, yes, that's a good idea, then you're not welcome to actually know what it's about. Because once you say, okay, I'm listening, you are the lead, tell me more, you realize it's actually um, less about the police and more about creating a society that people in all areas get treated like they're in the suburbs, basically. Yeah. They get like great after-school programs. They get jobs that are like locally owned, mom and pop shops. They get, you know, beautification. They get urban gardens. They get music all around them like yeah. it's actually this really beautiful concept and that the community takes care of its own that if you see something going wrong you're like hey no we as a community are going to come together and say you know we need to do something better 
And if you look at why police are called, the majority of times they're called is for mental health issues and domestic violence. And so really the concept is like behavioral therapists, community members, loving solutionists are better equipped and police don't want to do that kind of stuff anyway. So how do we have an alternative space where we can actually approach with love, solve with love, stop jailing people for different reasons, shooting people because we're scared of them and create something like very different. So yeah. reparations is a tiny piece of it. Yeah. There's so much more that's needed yeah. too. It's like the, the way even I think about it is like, empowering the the communities to take care of themselves and i know you i know you mentioned one of your ideas we, we don't like the word empowering because it's not like they, they don't have power right. it's more about like letting them use the power that they have to take care of themselves really and yes. and and have the ability and the freedom to grow and expand and contract and move the way they wish to do so that's exactly right. Like I visualize a, a power grid, you know, that is localized. Yes. Yeah. So self-generating, like solar energy, wind energy, not reliant on external power sources. That's our, those are our communities already. Yeah. And so how do we fund the existing power grid? Not mess with it, not remove power, not make it solely dependent on some external source. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, speaking of uh, analogies, um, one of your videos you had a really beautiful uh, explanation of like how do you how do you I think you use like a restaurant analogy for how do you define diversity, inclusion, and equity. Yes. <laughs> I was I, I thought I would, we would try to expand into like intersectionality and equality because I think I think those are like the two newer words. Um, are there any other definitions that are have been added that you know of? Uh, I think intersectionality is the latest one, and I don't know if everybody knows what that is. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think intersectionality is so important, um, and I, uh, the easiest way to explain it is that nobody shows up with just one characteristic, right? Like you have said, you know, you are Latinx. You are an immigrant. You are a woman. You know, a mother, like a working person. <laughs> exactly, and and a new mom too. So it's like incredible. I'm just like bowing down to you. Thank you. Um, so I do think that it's making room for us to bring all of our uh, identities into a space mm -hmm. and have them be thought about. That's intersectionality. As easy as I can. Absolutely. And um, how has the conversation evolved, uh, I think, from diversity and inclusion into intersectionality, in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, diversity and inclusion, um, at its heart, keeps inequitable structures the same and trims at the margin to sort of add a few people that are different into the mix. I also think diversity and inclusion are like code and language for black people and brown people. You know, like when we say, we don't have enough diversity here, what we're saying is like, where are the black and brown people? You know? And, and women usually as well. And women. Um, and so I think this shift that we've seen in the last few years toward equity and justice is really a shift away from keeping the systems the same and having a few black and brown people to taking saying let's get rid of the whole system let's dismantle this whole structure let center black and brown ownership of ideas of structures let's recreate all of it um, intersectionality i think creates room to say yes to all of that and let's also think about what it means to be in the disabled community. What does it mean to be LGBTQ plus? Um, what does it mean to be undocumented? And what does it mean to be a rural uh, white poor person? And so I think that intersectionality allows for people to show up with different identities, 
but also to show up um, legitimizing marginalized, marginalized communities from different spaces, still centering blackness. And that's why you hear BIPOC. I think even that acronym, Black Indigenous POC, it's saying like, here are marginalized communities all coming together, but we're still, even if we're talking about differently abled communities, even if we're talking about rural poor communities, even if we're talking about LGBTQ, we're still gonna center black and indigenous experiences, but we're gonna create room to add other lenses on top. Mm. I like that. I, I think uh, recently, when you, when, you, when you talk about changing the system and to create a different experience, I just wanted to give you a quick example of something that I came across recently because of my maternity leave. I was reading about how Europe does the maternity leave policies and that they're federally regulated, so it's a little bit different. But what they found is that um, they, um, they not only offered uh, men to go on paternity leave, they actually made it so that it's mandatory for men to go on paternity leave for at least two months or whatever minimum period um, they decided on. And what that created was a system of equality in which an employer could no longer discriminate against women for taking maternity leave and therefore giving them jobs that perhaps, you know, were not as long term or not as important or projects that were not as critical because they they may assume that that woman would at some point leave for a year or two in order to give to create life wow. but um it created more equality because at that point it put men and women in the same plane in which they will both leave regardless you know <laughs> or who has the baby and so in some ways, when I hear intersectionality and creating systemic change, I hear creating policies that affect everybody equally so that nobody gets discriminated within those policies. I think that's interesting. I hear two things in that story. Um, you know, the first I think is that we have created these systems and structures around our perceived notion of what works like in a patriarchy, you know, of what works for white, cis, hetero men. And that realistically, those systems and structures are not only not working for BIPOC people, but they're not working for white, cis, heterosexual men either. They're not. And they're not. And so we have an obligation to all of us to rethink. This isn't just about like, give me what you have. I want to be the head of this. It's like, how do we create systems that center ourselves, center our families, that are built on trust and dignity and respect for life and each other across difference and like go from there. That's it. Like, let's just start with that premise and then let's go from there. Um, and I think that you see that, it's funny that you would see that in other places before the United States. But so I hear that. And at the same time, and this could be the cynic in me, um, I hear that by legitimizing some of the things that women need, that BIPOC people need, that when you give it as a benefit to men and to white men or make it mandatory for them to have this, then it legitimizes the ask. You know, like suddenly it doesn't seem crazy to, to take a year to raise your tiny being that is completely dependent on you. You know, it's like, oh, well, then I guess it's a good idea for us. <laughs> I guess I could do that too. <laughs> so it's like great for that reason, but it's also like, oh my God, it's, you know, do we need to do that? Do we need to like, you know, the other way of, of saying that is, you know, thank you for this amazing idea. I did not think about this before, but now that you mention it, we should do it for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and we should, and that's, that would be like my professional approach, like terrific, terrific. freedom for everyone. It's just, just between us, there's that moment where I'm like. Absolutely, okay. no, it's totally true, it's, it's definitely is like the, uh, I call it the, <laughs> the white man stamp, 
you got the white men's stamp on it, so it's good to go. <laughs> like, oh, so now it's a good idea? Oh, okay, all right. Well, it's a good idea, but oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it happens in meeting too where, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, I don't know if it's a, it, it's a thing that happens. It has happened to me, let's put it that way, where if I say something, it's not official until my, white co-worker says, yes, that's a good idea. That's <laughs> happened to me last night. It's so interesting. I watch that happen all the time in so many Zooms. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but either way, regardless of how it happens, um, it should happen because it's, it's, it's good for everybody. Um, yes. and, and then we will worry about how it happens. <laughs> the next chapter. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, this is amazing. Um, so we are at the hour, believe it or not. This has been so fun. <laughs> can I just tell you, can we end with me telling you when, okay, so you reached out to me and you asked me to be on your podcast. I looked you up. I looked at what you've been up to. And I literally said in my email to you, like, yes, I'm obsessed with you. <laughs> <laughs> I love Unbossed. I love that it's named after Shirley Chisholm. You know, I love Unbossed, Unbought. I love that in the midst of your career and having a child, you've decided that you want to connect with women and you want to talk with people and you want to generate a connection and share these ideas. And that is Unbossed. You know, that's just you following your ideas as your currency and leading it to this path. Um, so I think you're awesome and thank, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. But I cannot let you finish with that because I usually have my outro going on. So here oh. are you ready? Yes. What book have you gifted the most or top two that I know you've, I, I can hear you're an avid reader of something. So give me two. I'm not going to let you give me more than two. Give me one or two max. Um, we do this till we free us which is Mariam Akabe's book, which I am in the midst of right now, okay. and Cast, which is Isabel Wilkerson's book, which I'm in the midst of reading for the second time because I'm going to do a book club in a couple weeks about it. Come in, come in. Okay, for sure. Making a note. Um, but, you know, especially the way we started this conversation about the way that race um, or anti-Semitism or caste systems hierarchy show up across the world it's just it's fascinating and heartbreaking yeah absolutely thank you what is a book you would write hmm. um have you written it is it out there uh so i have an mfa i have a master's of fine arts in writing actually from the school of the art institute so i have a book that i haven't written <laughs> but um my thesis i've always talked about expanding which is uh it's images of my family. I have these beautiful images. They're actually all around me right now. And I um, have a collection of stories that I tell about what is happening in this moment from the black side of my family, the Jewish side of my family, pulled into present. And so that is probably the book that I would write. Or I would write sort of like, what does it mean to operationalize racial justice? I love I love both of those ideas. Um, maybe they're combined. Yeah, and and I feel like it should be called power. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, what is uh? I think we can just finish up with like, what is one thing that you want um, people to know? Is there anything else going on with the foundation? Some events that that are happening, um, yeah. and then where do they find that information? Yes, um, so I'm gonna send you the link to actually, we've updated our heat maps okay. and we've worked with nearly 30 organizations around the city and they provide interactive maps that anybody can use to plan their way to COVID recovery equitably. Wow. And it's called Mapping Equitable Recovery. And I, for some reason, I'm blanking on the exact name of the website, but I will send it. Yeah, we can, we can put it in, yep. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so we just launched it last week and there are people in corporate, they're in um, public and private sectors that philanthropic that are using it to try to change how we operate post COVID. So I would love people to check that out and use it. Beautiful. 
And what does it mean for you to be embossed? It means that I'm not beholden to anyone except um, my ancestors and, you know, the desire to figure out like why I'm on the planet. There's a reason each of us are here. Yes. And I think if we can listen to ourselves, accept ourselves, um, push ourselves through all of the mistakes we're going to make, then we will be in service to our reason to be alive. And that's unbossed. I'm not reporting to anyone, but what my destiny is. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Angelique, for being unbossed. And I love what you have to say. I, I, I love you since I met you. I am learning from you every day. So keep up the good work. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye.